Several factors impact the safe and effective prescribing of anticoagulation therapy. Issues that come into play include genetics, weight, renal impairment, and the potential for drug-induced thrombocytopenia. How can we best use this knowledge to augment our approach to anticoagulation? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Kate Phillips, PharmD, clinical specialist in cardiology and anticoagulation at the Boston Medical Center. Dr. Phillips also recently authored a review article on anticoagulation in special patient populations that was published in the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, anticoagulation therapy has certainly received notice from accrediting bodies like the Joint Commission. In recent years, it's become a focus of one of the organization's national patient safety goals. Why is it that anticoagulation is receiving such close attention? The class of anticoagulants are extremely effective medications. However, they are difficult to manage. They require vigilant dosing. They require extensive monitoring in order to minimize the risk and improve safety when these medications are used. They are life-saving medications. In the recent years, there have been some efforts to really start identifying new anticoagulants that work in different mechanisms that may require decreased monitoring. Warfarin's a drug that's been around between 50 and 100 years in our clinical use. Why do some clinicians continue to find drug dosing so challenging? You know, because warfarin has been around for so long, there are just so many factors that can affect warfarin dosing, and it is challenging. It's probably the most challenging medication that we have right now. The pharmacokinetics of warfarin make it difficult, so it has a very narrow therapeutic range. We're targeting, you know, an INR between two and three, which can be somewhat narrow, especially when there's so much interpatient variability with dosing requirements. So, age, weight, concomitant disease states, varying nutrition status, liver function, concomitant medications and drug interactions, as well as now we're hearing about recent genetics that may come into play as well. So all of these factors really do come into play with this interpatient variability. The half-life of the medication is a little bit long and typically about one to three days. And as well, as far as the mechanism of action, so how warfarin actually interacts with and depletes the clotting factors. So all of these different factors sort of come into play and make warfarin extremely challenging for practitioners to manage. And we're talking about differences of, say, days between the time that one clotting factor is, you know, quote, depleted, unquote, and that other factors are as well. Is that right? Right. So the clotting factors that warfarin works on are 2, 7, 9, and 10, and they do vary, the longest being factor 2, thrombin, which can take up to four to five days to actually be depleted for the system. So we don't see warfarin's initial anticoagulant effects until the factors that are currently hanging around the body are actually depleted. So it takes, typically we say, four to five days to see initial effects of warfarin. What are some of the different cytochrome P450 enzymes involved in warfarin's metabolism? So warfarin is made up of two enantiomers, R-warfarin and S-warfarin. S-warfarin is more potent and it's metabolized through the cytochrome P452C9 pathway. So the enzyme 2C9 is involved, as well as something called vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme, which mediates warfarin's effects. Those are the two main enzymes that are related to, we sort of talked about the genetic determinants of warfarin metabolism. 
two cytochrome P452C9 polymorphisms are linked to sort of classifying patients as poor metabolizers. So patients that may have a polymorphism in the CYP2C9 gene will have an extended half-life of warfarin. So that half-life of warfarin that's usually about, can be about two to four days will actually be extended, and these patients will require lower doses of warfarin. Patients that may have a polymorphism to the vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme, or VCOR, have varying resistance to warfarin dosing as well. So these patients as well can require higher doses of warfarin in order to see its effects. Which patient populations out there are most likely to be affected by these varying genetics? As of now, literature does show that there is a link to ethnicity. The VCOR C1, so the vitamin K epoxide reductase enzyme, polymorphism is often associated with Asian Americans that typically require lower dosing requirements. And it is less common in African Americans that in clinical practice, they often require higher doses of warfarin. So there has at this point been some link to different ethnic groups and having the frequency of these polymorphisms. How much is warfarin's interpatient dosing variability attributable to genetics? Do we have any idea? It's a little less unknown. There are a few studies out there that really look at these two major polymorphisms that I've mentioned, so the VCOR C1 polymorphism and the cytochrome P452C9 polymorphism. So they've looked at those two genetic factors as well as some of the other variable factors that we know, such as age, weight, disease state, and found that that accounts for about... 55 to 65% of dosing variability, which still leaves quite a bit of percentage that, you know, it's not attributed to those factors. So there may be other genetic factors. I think there's sort of a little bit of an abyss of what actually fully relates to the variability of this dosing. Editorials and review articles and publications like New England Journal of Medicine and Pharmacotherapy have questioned the utility of genetic testing of warfarin, suggesting that it's perhaps a little too early to practically incorporate knowledge into clinical decision-making. Do you agree with that assessment? And what are some of the challenges facing clinicians who want to employ genetic profiling? So genetic-guided testing states that it will lead to better control of your patient's INR and better control of warfarin management. It's been shown in some studies to increase time to therapeutic INR, and it's been shown to decrease risk of bleeding because these patients are, quote-unquote, managed more appropriately. However, there have been some negative studies to date as well that really show no difference in patients that are dosed with an algorithm that takes genetics into account versus one that does not. So, I think a few of the barriers would be, A, that genetic testing is really only useful in patients that are initiating warfarin. So what about our patients that we see in the clinic that are extremely hard to manage, that are constantly up and down, and there doesn't seem to be, you know, an evident reason why? Genetic testing is not really going to help so much. There's the argument that practitioners can actually detect what the genotype may be in patients after seeing the response of warfarin after three to four doses. The genetic testing is really just helping us out in figuring what that initial dose is to start the patient. Would it be a lower dose or would they necessarily need a higher dose? We still need to monitor these patients. So because we have, you know, a genetic 
polymorphism, we can't necessarily assume that they're going to acquire lower doses and they'll be therapeutic and they'll be fine. We still have to do the same amount of monitoring because, as mentioned, other factors do come into play with affecting dosing. The time for response, so at our hospital, and I think at a lot of hospitals across the country, we don't have the ability in our labs to test for this genetic polymorphism, so we have to send it out. It won't come back typically for, you know, five to seven days, which at that point the patients received a week of warfarin therapy, and we can essentially see what, how their INR responded. It is an added healthcare cost, the cost of the machine itself to actually do these lab tests. It is thousands of dollars. So it increases healthcare costs sort of around the board. And we haven't seen yet in the literature a cost-benefit analysis that really states if this is the most cost-effective or cost-beneficial way to manage our patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Kate Phillips, PharmD, Clinical Specialist in Cardiology and Anticoagulation at Boston Medical Center. We've been talking about anticoagulation and genetic testing in guiding warfarin therapy. And returning just sort of to the more general topic of anticoagulation, I was wondering what sort of characteristics you look for when you initially start to treat a patient presenting with, say, idiopathic venous thromboembolism with warfarin therapy. So in a brand new patient, the first questions that we really look for are, you know, what are their risk factors? What are their concomitant disease states that may have led them to you know, forming an idiopathic venous thromboembolism. There are other concomitant disease states as well can let us know sort of how we may need to manage this patient's warfarin. Want to look for sure at concomitant medications that the patient is taking because warfarin has an extremely high number of drug interactions. Talk to the patient about what their diet is, if they drink alcohol, as that can also affect INR levels. Want to evaluate their compliance level as well as this medication. In the beginning, we need to monitor INRs on a weekly basis and then move towards, you know, every two weeks or every once a month. Up front, what's the importance of overlapping parenteral anticoagulation with warfarin therapy? Sure. So, the half-life of warfarin itself is about one to three days. So, to reach steady state, it's going to take about a week. Furthermore, for warfarin to work in its mechanism of action, it needs to deplete the currently circulating clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 that are vitamin K dependent. It will take at least three to four days to deplete some of these factors as they can hang around in the body for an extended period of time. In addition, during those first four days of warfarin therapy, it also depletes protein C and S in your body, which are your natural anticoagulants. At this time, the patient's in a slightly increased hypercoagulable state. So warfarin, as well as an IV unfractionated heparin or a subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin, should be started ideally on the same day that warfarin is started as well. And they should be continued overlapping the patient until the patient gets therapeutic on warfarin and sort of bridging them through this time of a hypercoagulable state in the initial few days. The bridge ideally should last at least four to five days, and after two consecutive INRs that are greater than 2.0 or greater than your targeted INR goal. This overlap is extremely important, and as well, we mentioned the Joint Commission and the National Quality Forum really has anticoagulants on their high alert. As well, this overlap of four to five days is a potential performance measure that we may see come out in the next few months as well. 
Now, of course, we don't typically bridge or even parenterally anticoagulate somebody who is starting warfarin therapy for something like AFib, but it's for the reason of the depletion of the uh, natural anticoagulants, protein CNS, that we, in particular, overlap anticoagulation therapy. Correct. In a patient with AFib, their risk is a little bit lower than a patient that actually has an active DVT or PE. And again, you want to sort of be a little bit more cautious with those patients and cover them up front. We've been talking with Dr. Kate Phillips about employing what we know about differences in warfarin metabolism and genetics to clinical practice. Thank you, Dr. Phillips, for being our guest. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Please be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM-157. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, and thank you for listening.